Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Frozen deep inside ice sheets in Greenland and Siberia by secrets to Earth's past. In Greenland, in the Cold War, the US Army undertook some pre-secret experiments, the result of which actually helped us understand what could have been covering Greenland a million years ago. And we find out what was lurking in Siberian permafrost that got unearthed and reanimated and brought to life. And it's not a Cold War monster, but something much more interesting. Now, Siberia has a pretty tough reputation for being an unforgiving, cold and extreme place to live. Pretty harsh, but sometimes beautiful. Swampy, icy, depending on the season. And this is one of the fantastic things about Siberia, which can make it a fascinating place to study. But also, when you see news stories saying of something being unearthed from the depths of Siberia, well, it makes for good headlines. But it's actually not that surprising. After all, Siberia is vast, and Siberia is a place full of lots of interesting environments, especially environments that have undergone pretty seismic changes over a long period of time. Now, what's been discovered there and talked about in the news is an ancient creature that has been unearthed in Siberian soil, something from over 24,000 years ago. But before we dive into the actual paper that was recently published in the journal Current Biology and talk about the amazing discovery that was made there, we need to spend a bit of time talking about an unlikely, very small creature that you may be aware of, the Rotifer. Now, Rotifers are pretty unique creatures. They're very small. The largest of them can get up to a millimetre in size. But officially, they're classified as animals. Now, the reason why I say officially is because they operate on the scale of some unicellular creatures, which we don't normally classify as animals. But because of the unique structure of the rotifer itself, the fact that it has a complete digestive tract from mouth through to anus, the fact that it has organs with complex roles, it's not a unicellular creature. It's actually an animal. It has everything that we normally associate with an animal, just on an incredibly tiny scale. Now, rotifers are pretty amazing because they can survive in really strange and unusual environments. You can find them living in anywhere there's a small film of water. And the reason why that's important for them is because that's how they move around and float and fly and f feed. Now, these little creatures can often be found in soil particles, in water films, water-rich environments like lake bottoms, so anywhere with still water. They can also be seen living with still water on, say, a rock like moss or lichen would grow. And you can find them in rain gutters, puddles and soil and leaf litter, growing near the trunks of dead trees on mushrooms or even inside the tank of a sewage treatment plant. Some enterprising rotifers can even manage to grow on the shells of crustaceans and even on aquatic insect larvae. This is pretty amazing. Rotifers are a pretty special creature, but because they're so soft, because they're basically almost like a microscopic organism, well, you don't really get good fossil records of them. In fact, some have actually been detected all the way back by Viner in 1988. They've even found some inside amber from the Eocene by Wagner and Poinard in 1993. Now, these fossilized remains of these tiny, amazing creatures are pretty special finds, which is why the discovery of this paper of a old, ancient, 24,000-year-old rotifer 
Well, that was really exciting for a biologist because that's way, way older than what we've ever found before. And in fact, it was actually found in a way that was interesting enough to be preserved. Now, the name Rotifer is derived from the Latin word meaning wheelbarrow. There's a little crown of cilia around the mouth of the Rotifer. The rapid movements of this cilia in some species actually make them whirl around and spin, a bit like a wheel. And the Rotifer has a general body plan that has four basic regions. So there's some variation in the species. A head, a neck, a trunk, a main body, and the foot. The head carries a corona, a crown of cilia, that draws a vortex of water into the mouth, which the Rotifer then sifts through, collecting food and nutrients that it can eat. The food itself is then chomped and ground up by its trophite jaws that are located just behind the mouth inside the throat. Now, trophite like this are found in almost all of the rotifers, and it's one of the characteristic organs that make them a rotifer. Now, one of the fascinating things about a rotifer's body is it's external but not internally segmented. The body kind of telescopes out with a semi-flexible, extendable, transparent cuticle covering it. This is like you would see inside a roundworm or an arthropod. This is all pretty fascinating because this little animal is much like other animals that we've seen. It has specialized organ systems, a complete digestive tract, includes both mouth and anus. And these are all uniquely animal characteristics. So even though these creatures are microscopic, they're actually classified just like the rest of the animal kingdom. That is pretty amazing. There are around 2,000 different species of rotifers that we've identified. And they all come in three general categories. And it's actually pretty easy to determine the differences between them. Well, because whilst rotifers can't be seen with the naked eye, they pretty easily show up under a microscope. And because they're often found in pretty microscopic things like still water, it's pretty easy to take samples and collect them and observe them for yourself. So what exactly did they discover in this remnants of water that somehow managed to survive for 24,000 years in the Siberian permafrost. Now, this research was published in the journal Current Biology, and lead author of this paper was Lubivlov Shomokova, Stash Malavin, Natalia Irvenko, Tatiana Vishniveshka, Daniel Shine, Michael Pleka, and Elisaveta Rivinkna. Now, these researchers worked together to analyze all kinds of samples from the Siberian permafrost that they've been collecting. And it's been proven previously that rotifers can survive without oxygen or in really strange environments, even up to 10 years when they're frozen, based on early evidence. So based on that, these researchers thought, well, in all these samples that we've been taking from all various locations, could there be some rotifers hiding inside? Because the researchers had previously identified many single-celled microbes in the samples they collected. There's also been even a report of a 30,000-year-old nematode worm Mosses and some plants that they've taken out of the Siberian permafrost actually have been regenerated after many thousand years trapped inside ice in the Siberian permafrost. Based on that, the researchers all working together at the Soil Chronology Laboratory at the Institute of 
physiochemical and biological problems in soil science in Pushtino, Russia, had been investigating whether or not they could actually find rotifers and then after that, bring them back to life after thousands and thousands of years. Now, the report that they published really outlines how something could actually survive. Even something as complex as a multicellular animal could actually undergo cryptobiosis, the state of almost being in a completely arrested and frozen metabolism. That is pretty amazing to think about. When we talk about cryogenic freezing, someone being put on ice like you would see in science fiction, that's pretty much this concept, cryptobiosis. Now, this is an example of something successfully going into that state, even though it is a complex organism with a complex metabolism. It's not a single cell unicellular life form. It's actually a complex animal. Now, the thing is, these rotifers could survive almost indefinitely in a state of suspended animation, provided it's in the right environment, like, say, being frozen in the Siberian tundra and located inside the permafrost. But once thawed, the rotifer which they took out was radiocarbon dated to be around 24,000 years old, and it belongs to the genus Adineta. It was able to reproduce in a clonal process known as pathogenesis, once they managed to prove that they could do it once, they developed this process of freezing and recovery of these ancient rotifers. They froze and then dethawed dozens of rotifers in the lab to show that these creatures could survive the freezing process and come back out unharmed. Now, the rotifers could withstand the formation of ice crystals that happened during slow freezing. That's important because it suggests that there's some mechanism inside their, them to shield their cells and organs from harm, even at exceedingly low temperatures. Because the formation of ice crystals in other creatures can rupture and burst the cells themselves, shattering the water and leading to all kinds of strange things happening. So the fact that these creatures managed to survive that despite being so small is pretty remarkable. Now, the main takeaway for the researchers like Malavin is that multicellular organisms can be frozen and stored for thousands of years and then returned back to life which is the dream of many fiction writers. Of course, the more complex the organism, the trickier it is to preserve it alive and frozen. For mammals, it's not currently possible. Yet moving from a single-celled organism to an organism with a gut and a brain, even though it's microscopic, is a big step forward. Now, that's a very valid point from Malavin. It's one thing to freeze a microscopic life form. It's another thing to think about freezing a human for thousands of years into the future. But, as a concept, it's fascinating that we have now got evidence of this actually occurring in nature. It's not clear what it takes to survive on ice for even a few years, let alone thousands that occurred in this example. And that needs further analysis. And they'll continue to explore Arctic samples and search for other potentially long-dormant creatures capable of cryptobiosis. They want to learn what the biological mechanisms is that allow the rotifers to survive that long and to keep their cells shielded so they don't freeze and shatter themselves into tiny pieces. And it hoped that insights learned from these creatures will offer clues as how to better preserve cells, tissues and organs of other animals, including humans. There's some great research published in the journal Current Biology and it's a fascinating tale of unthawing something tens of thousands of years ago 
and learning just how remarkable life can be to survive in some pretty strange environments. Now from one day of unearthing something buried deep in the ice to another, not in Siberia this time, but rather Greenland, it has always seen lots of different waves of migration, which is pretty impressive given how close it is to the North Pole, how old it is and covered in ice. The name Greenland itself we get from Eric the Red, who used Greenland as a bit of a trick to try and incentivize people to come with him to this strange and cold terrible location. But early Paleoid Inuit cultures had made that journey either in boats or across the ice from as long ago as 2500 BCE. And there's been many other cultures that have made their way across there and we know about them through various records including the Norse settlements in the 900s and of course the Thule culture in the 1300s as well. Now there's lots of different communities have made their way to Greenland but in the Second World War it became a strategic important military base. Now, they gained their independence too at that time, but it was a Cold War central hub for people like the US military. And the reason why the US military were attracted to this cold and inhospitable place near the North Pole was to develop secret military bases. Now, not for Captain America related reasons, as you might have guessed. But the truth is that the US military did want to do some pretty strange things under the ice. In fact, in the 1960s, they had a camp, a Cold War military base called Camp Century. Now, the real purpose of this was called Project Iceworm, which sadly didn't involve any actual worms. In fact, it involved hiding 600 nuclear missiles under the ice, as close to the Soviet Union as possible, whilst remaining hidden. Now, as a cover story, the US Army said, no, no, this is a polar science research station. But realistically, it wasn't doing much science. It was digging really deep holes to hide these missiles in. Now, whilst that wasn't successful as a military endeavor, they did discover some pretty amazing things buried deep in the ice. Drilled fabulously deep holes, almost 5,000 feet deep, and they took these amazingly large ice cores. Now the thing is, the scientists were focused on the ice cores itself because you can study the bubbles and the atmosphere inside the ice cores and what happened through the ice ages. But at the very bottom, they found something much more fascinating for modern scientists. They actually found dirt. Now the scientists brushed off this dirt and sediment as basically being boring geological stuff. But actually, for modern researchers, it hold some pretty interesting data. Now the thing is, this massive ice core, well, it was moved from this army research base, then packaged up and sent in the 1970s when that project wound up, all the way over to the University of Buffalo. Then it moved from one freezer there, all the way over to Copenhagen in Denmark in the 1990s, where it sat in a yet another freezer. And it wasn't there until very recently, 2017, that somebody actually realized that there was some pretty interesting stuff in these ice cores. Basically, when they're about to move it somewhere else. 
Now, this old ice core was finally rediscovered by scientists who were paying attention in 2017. And then in 2019, University of Vermont scientist Andrew Christ started to analyse the sediment that he'd been finding there. And collaborating with various researchers from across the globe, like Paul Berman at UVM, Jörg Schaefer at Columbia University, Dr. Jarl Janssen at University of Copenhagen, tried to study the strange things they found in this sediment sample from underneath an ice shelf in Greenland. Because what they found there were plants buried beneath a mile of ice on the Greenland ice sheet. This is pretty amazing. Now, the results of this paper were published in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Now, Christ and the colleagues from this large team of international collaborators have been taking these and studying these fossils. Now, what's significant about this is it shows that, most of all, Greenland must have been ice-free within the last million years, perhaps even as recently as the last few hundred thousand years. The reason is that when you have a large ice sheet, especially one so big and heavy, they pretty much pulverize and crush everything in their path. But what they saw in these sedimentary samples were delicate, preserved plant fossils. They're fossils. They look like they died yesterday. They're captured beautifully in this icy soil. It's a time capsule of what used to live on the surface of Greenland. That's amazing because it helps confirm a new and troubling understanding that the Greenland ice has melted off entirely during recent warming periods in Earth's history. Periods like the one we're now actually making through human-caused climate change. But the behaviour of this Greenland ice sheet has changed over time in the past as well, often sometimes through pretty catastrophic geological events. And understanding how the Greenland ice sheet changed in the past is very useful for predicting how it will change in the future. Now, since some 20 feet of sea level rise is tied up in Greenland's ice, this, what happens in Greenland, or what happens to its large ice sheet, isn't just a problem for Greenland, it's a problem for every coastal city in the world. So if all of Greenland's ice melted, we would see a pretty remarkable jump in sea level, even over here, for me, in Australia. So what it shows is that Greenland is a fragile and sensitive ecosystem that's subject to very large swings in climate behaviour. And that is not a good thing, because something that's subject to very large swings could mean some pretty strange outcomes. Now, researchers like Paul Beerman from UVM have highlighted the fact that this is not a 20-generation problem, something we can think about for 20 generations in the future. This is an urgent problem for the next 50 years. Much of the Pleistocene, the icy period covering the last 2.6 million years, Portions of the ice in Greenland persisted even during warmer spells called the interglacial periods. But in general, most of the story we've been trying to piece together and understand from indirect evidence in mud and rock that washed off the island and gathered around offshore, got dug up by oil drilling mostly. Now, the extent of Greenland's ice sheet and what kind of ecosystems existed there before the last interglacial warm period ended, that ended around 120,000 years ago, have been really well debated and not really well understood just purely because of a lack of actual physical first-hand evidence rather than indirect studies. 
Now, these ice cores that have come out from the Camp Century drilling holes are some 75 miles inland from the coast and only around 800 miles actually from the North Pole itself. Now, this area almost entirely melted at least once within the last million years and melted for long enough to be covered in lush vegetation, including moss and perhaps even trees. Now, that is a pretty amazing thing, This, but it would align up with data gathered from other ice cores collected in Greenland in the 1990s. Sediment at the bottom of those cores also indicate the ice sheet was gone for some time in the recent geological past. So again, we're talking about somewhere in the last 120,000 years with a period of time where somewhere so close to the North Pole didn't have any ice, but maybe even had forests and trees. Now, the combination of these new cores and the old cores gives us a deep insight into what happened in the Greenland ice sheets. Now, what they were able to do is also study not just the sediment, the fossils they found in there, but also even the waxy coating of the leaves that they found at the bottom of these ice cores. They could measure rare forms of isotope of both aluminium and beryllium and quartz. And this type of stuff is normally only exposed to the sky and can be hit by cosmic rays. So these ratios give an insight into how long window of time existed for when these rocks were exposed to the surface, as opposed to being you know, buried under thousands of meters of ice. This gave scientists a precise clock for what happened in Greenland in the past. They could also use other isotopes or rare forms of oxygen found inside the ice within the sediment to reveal what precipitation must have fallen and how rain or water, snow could have fallen to basically prove that an ice sheet didn't exist at the time. These are all new forms of study that weren't available at the time that go along with other traditional methods like radiocarbon dating and bits of wood in the ice and allowed the team to actually show that Greenland, if not most, but a significant portion of it, melted and significantly almost all melted for at least once during the past million years, making Greenland actually green with moss and lichen, perhaps even spruce and fir trees. Now, this means that regions like near the North Pole haven't always just been locked in ice forever. It's not a permanent thing. There's been some pretty radical shifts in what has happened there. And that is important for us to stand, understand as we go into a period of pretty radical shifts created by human-induced climate change. This is a fascinating research paper published in the Journal of Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences about how we can learn a lot from some Cold War relics about what happened in the Greenland in the not-too-distant past and how they might apply into the future. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. Two cold tales of frozen forms of life, helping us gain insights into permafrost, what lurked in Siberia, and what covered Greenland or not thousands of years ago. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.